I did the wrong thing or not necessarily the wrong thing. I just had a very narrow approach, right? I had a hammer and I thought that hammer was going to solve every single problem that I came across. And it turns out, surprise, surprise, like you need more tools than a hammer. (laughs) Welcome to the Trailhead of Trail Runner Nation, where we go on virtual trail runs with interesting, knowledgeable guests that help teach us how to be better runners and maybe even better human beings. If it's your first time here, we welcome you. The trail is very long and that there's room for everybody. Lace up your shoes. Here we go. And today we're running with author Steve Magnus. He wrote the book, Do Hard Things, which we have been discussing for the last three episodes, and I even love the book more now than I did before. Steve is such a great guest. A couple weeks ago, I told you that I'm back on the wagon with my ritual morning routine of athletic greens. First thing I do when I wake up is I go get a nice cold bottle of water, put a scoop of athletic greens in it, and drink it down. And it's become a habit, and I'm. it's a good habit to have. It's a healthy habit. It's the kind of habit you want to have, Scott, because your body needs good nutrients, and Athletic Greens has all of them. 72 essential vitamins, minerals, all the good things you need from the right source. If you want a deal, you can go to trailrunnernation.com, click on the Deals tab, Scroll down to Athletic Greens, and there's all the information you need there. What you're going to get with your first order is a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is, is go to our webpage, or you can go to athleticgreens.com slash trailrunnernation. If you want to run better and feel better, get some Athletic Greens. just makes sense. Scott, when I woke up this morning, what do you think the first thing that I did? I don't know, Don. What? I took a shower and then I applied native deodorant. You know why? Because it works. Native's clean, effective body wash is what you should have been putting on before that deodorant. They have all sorts of healthy body products. It uses simple ingredients that help cleanse your skin. Scott, just so you know, it was native body wash that I used. It was cucumber mint, and it smells great, it feels great, and you know what? It makes my skin feel good. Unlike other body washes that use sulfates to create a rich lather, native body wash offers that rich lather without the use of sulfates. That means it leaves your skin moisturized, silky smooth, and residue-free. Go to nativedo.com slash TRN or use the code TRN at checkout and you'll get 40% off your first three-pack of Native Body Wash. 40% off. That's a gift from TRN. We'd love you to try it. Thanks for joining another edition of Trail Runner Nation. My name is Don Freeman. And I'm Andy Jones Wilkins. And I'm Scott War, And we are here today to talk to the author of the book we've been spending so much time on, Doing Hard Things. Let me get the, the full title. Doing Hard Things, Why We Get Resilience Wrong, and the Surprising Science of Real Toughness. Steve Magnus, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, no, thanks so much for having me, guys. I'm really excited to be here. We're going to give a lot more information about Steve, his pedigree and everything at the end, as well as some links that you want to go follow. He has a newsletter. He has a podcast. We'll leave all of that to the end of the episode and also in the show notes. 
But you should know that that, that Steve's been cons- a consultant on mental skills development for professional sports teams like the NBA, uh, Major League Baseball, entrepreneurs, executives. And as a young runner, and you'll find this in the book, Steve was a was super fast. He w- had one of the fastest high school mile times at 401. And after high school, he went on to uh, the University of Houston and tried to beat that four-minute barrier. But uh, And I, d- I don't know whether you finally did beat the four-minute barrier. Did you ever go under four, Steve? You know, I did not. So I am one of those guys who probably went up against that barrier around like 401, 402, 403, like so many times. But I get to proudly stand on the other side and be like, I didn't get there. So, you know, which I think has actually kind of shaped my life in a positive way. One of the things, the stories that you tell in the book, kind of the, the origins of this toughness book is you were a tough high school runner. You got out there and you pushed yourself and pushed yourself until the point where you you at every race, I guess you puked. I mean, that is that is literally toughness. But then when you got to to University of Houston, things didn't go the way that you wanted to. And you kind of had to start looking at, is this the right way to train and run? Uh, And I want to get into that. How, How did you how did that paradigm start to shift? Yeah, absolutely. So you set the stage well. I mean, if I went back to my high school career, like I literally threw up after just about every race, like it was such common knowledge that my teammates would like find a trash can and drag it over towards the like finish line because they knew it was coming, you know? So that was the norm. And I thought like, okay, this is what it means to be tough. I'm just going to push until I puke. Like this is me until I got to college. And for whatever reason, I suffered from this kind of condition, which I found out was, was vocal cord dysfunction. And what happened is the first time it happened in a race is I'm running along, I'm trying to break that four-minute mile barrier. I get all the way, almost to three-quarters of the way through, almost at 1,200 meters, and I just feel this sensation where like, my neck tightens, I'm trying to breathe, but it's almost like my, my throat is just like shut, completely mm-hmm. shut. And in that moment, I just like freaked out. I'm like, holy crap, I'm running a race, and I can't breathe, and like this is really freaking weird. So I... I literally kind of passed out on the infield of the track. And thankfully, when you pass out, automatically your airway opens and you Mm. start to breathe. So I came to pretty quickly. But it was such a strange sensation. And what I had, what I learned after going through all sorts of doctors and all this stuff, and it, it kept happening in other races, is that for whatever reason, my vocal cords were getting the wrong message. So generally they get the message to stay open when you're doing something hard and they get the message to like close at random intervals, um, you know, throughout the day. But what happened is that that message had flipped. So my brain was sending a message to close whenever I felt like stressed or like was pushing hard or anxiety or what have you. So that presents the problem because my go-to strategy when a race got hard was just to kind of push and almost get tight, right? It's like put your head down and just like push through it. And if I tried to do that, guess what would happen is my vocal cords were shut. So the solution, literally, I'm sitting in these world-renowned experts 
their solution was you have to retrain your your essentially brain and then also your your kind of throat and neck and all this to when it's that moment of extreme stress and discomfort to relax. Mm. And I was like, great, like this sounds wonderful. Like how in the world do you do this? And and here's the thing is that most of the time vocal cord dysfunction, it happens in athletes, but where you really see it is actually in singers. So they give me all this advice that's related to like, you know, world-renowned singers or opera singers who have gone through this. <laughs> and it was helpful, but it was really kind of paving my own way where I had to like figure this thing out to like retrain my brain to relax and like not get tight. And that's what really sent me down this path of saying, okay, like maybe there's another way or some other tools that we could use to get through through those difficult moments, whether it be racing or anything else. I'm going to jump in here because anybody who's listened to Trail Runner Nation for any period of time knows that perhaps my favorite topic is is talking about vomiting. <laughs> <laughs> There's another great part of the book. I know we're going a little off script here, but Steve, you'll re- recall where you uh, you had spoken to a coach. I believe she was a college coach, cross country, and she had an athlete uh, that regularly, or he had an athlete that regularly vomited about two minutes before she had pre-race anxiety and literally vomited within a few minutes of the start every single time. So again, in this context of the thread throughout the whole book, which is providing tools, he goes up to her before one race and says, hey, hey, honey, it's time to schedule your throw up. <laughs> and she looks at him like he's got two heads like, what What do you mean? Well, you always throw up before. Let's get it. Let's let's get it scheduled. And we'll you know, we'll go ahead. And, and so she's dumbfounded and she says, OK, 90 seconds before the start. So he comes up to her 90 seconds before the start says, okay, okay, time to throw up. And she's like, I don't need to. And the 90 seconds goes by and she starts the race and she has the best race she's had all season. And she got the tools. Now it was different than getting coached by expert people on vocal cords, but the idea is similar. You, you mentioned that seeing those doctors led you to having to flip the script. This coach forced the athlete to flip the script. They both have to do with vomiting, but interestingly enough, they both led to almost a, like a quick use of that tool to, to you know, have this breakthrough. I thought that was just fascinating. I appreciate that. And I, I love that story. It was one of my favorite to tells. And actually, when I was talking to athlete, at first, they were like, I don't know if I want this in the book. And like, this is kind of embarrassing. And I'm like, no, this isn't embarrassing. It's like freeing. I said, it's up to you. I'll only write about it if you allow me. But after a while, she was like, yeah, yeah, no, lots of people suffer from this. This is this is like good. And I think the message there is is really important is that often we think like the tools are like complex and take a lot of time and sometimes they do. But this was something that was very simple, which is like, hey, let's you're going to throw up anyways. Let's put it in the schedule, which what does that do? It gives her some sort of sense of control (laughs) and like flips that script where her brain goes, oh, okay, I'll stop. You know, it's like, I'm, I'm not going to do that. And I think that's kind of the message that I want to send is that so often in those moments that are really tough, whether it's vomiting or whatever have you, we often feel like it gets to the point where it's out of our control. And often if we just like do something small to wrestle back just a little more control or try a different tool, what that does is it frees us up to like perform. And I think that that's such a powerful message, regardless of whatever you're facing. 
you know, not not to be a spoiler alert for the book, but I, people should go out and get it. You both mentioned flipping the script, and and I think that's what you've done with toughness. You've essentially said, "Hey, let's flip the script. Trying harder and doing more isn't necessarily being tougher." And I don't think listening to your story that you you started with the vocal cords, I don't think anybody was a greater offender of this than you. You tried so hard. And you just push so much that you ended up with this vocal cord tightening, disrupting your your breathing, and had trouble. I think that you wrote this book out of self discovery. You know, I think that's a great point. And you know, I've always thought whenever people ask, like, "Well, where does this idea come from?" On books, here's the secret for authors: you always tend to write the book that like resonates with something that you went through, mm. right? So, like, although this book, you know, came out in 2022, whatever, it's like these ideas have been circulating, circulating in my head for, gosh, now decades, right? All the way going back to high school, to that experience in college, and you're just trying to figure it out and wrestle with it. And I think that's hopefully one of the messages that comes across is that, like, you know, you're just wrestling. These things aren't easy. These things are things that I experienced myself. These are things that for a, a long period of time in my own running career, like I did the wrong thing or not necessarily the wrong thing. I just had a very narrow approach, right? I had a hammer and I thought that hammer was going to solve every single problem that I came across. And it turns out, surprise, surprise, like you need more tools than a hammer. So <laughs> that's kind of my my nuanced message here is like, you know, kind of flip that script and give yourself some more options so that, you know, you can take on whatever it is life throws at you. I think one of the themes that I got out of this, and and by the way, I, I'm right there with you on what my definition of toughness was. In the la- latter parts of the of the book, you get into, you know, there's four responses you can have, and and one of them is ignoring. So, and and this is exactly what I do when I'm out there, and I'm I, I feel a a niggle, or I feel a blister forming, or I feel my legs tightening up or getting tired. I just ignore it, ignore it, ignore it until it gets to the point where I can't ignore it anymore. And then I try to just push through it. And and I think that there's a lot of people out there that are thinking the same thing, that that's what toughness is, and that's how they're going to build their toughness. But the thing that was just eye-opening to me is that there are other ways. And, and the big thing is, is to, is the whole idea of choice that you, you try to take all these stimuli input and then you, you try to analyze to, to, instead of react, um, you, you try to choose the best solution for the problem. And, and that choice frees you and that choice gives you hope that choice motivates. And, and I just love that. How how did you come up with the idea or or where did you learn the idea that choice is key to being tough? All right. So here's here's the long story on this is you go down so many rabbit holes when you write a book. So many rabbit holes and so many things that you thought, oh, this is going to be where I'm going. Like you go in a totally different direction. So how did I come across that? I was reading a book that came, I even forget the title of it, but a book that came out in like the 1960s that was on how the military was dealing with pain. 
And what I found is hidden away in this book were two things. One, there was a study that I referenced in the book where it talked about like dealing with stress and whether soldiers felt like they had control over the outcome or if they didn't. And it found out when they didn't have control, like their stress levels were through the roof. And then in this like little part of this this book, it referenced this idea, which I talk about in the book, called give up itis. And it didn't say much about it. So I go through the the research and like dig in the like studies from the 1960s and 70s. And it talks about during the Korean War, I think it was, they had all these prisoner of war people, POWs, who were dying. And then they were able to like do autopsies and stuff, and they couldn't figure out why they were dying. So they just called it give up itis. And what it turned out to be, or the theory, and then there's modern work on this as well that validates it. What ended up happening is like we go through this kind of uh, almost like fear response when we take away all sense of control, like often POWs have, like they have no sense of control. And it pushes them to this point of apathy where then like the ultimate, you know, result is unfortunately sometimes death where it's like, there's no control. There's no choice. Like we're stuck. Like death is, is the end result. And what they found is that for these POWs, and there was actually some, some work done in the Holocaust and by uh, Victor Frankel also mentions this is if you gave people a sense of control, even on the smallest thing. So I think Viktor Frankl called it like remembering to like shave every day or whatever have you. Why? Because you're in this crazy environment. You have no control. But one thing you can do is shave and kind of look decent on your face. And that what he said is like the people who tended to shave like tended to survive. Why? Is there anything magical about shaving? No. But what it does is it gives you some sort of okay I can control something, I can have an impact, I can impact how I appear in this situation, and that little small bit is sometimes enough to get me through, not always. So that put me down this rabbit hole, and then you you look at, you know, I was able to tie it back to athletic performance and some modern psychology, where it turns out that, like, the power of having a choice and having a sense of control is so important, and we see it in, in sports all the time with athletes who have rituals or whatever have you why do they do that because they're about to experience some crazy situation like trying to hit a hundred mile an hour fastball (laughs) which which is tough you don't have a lot of control over it you fail more often than you succeed but if you do your little batting ritual beforehand it kind of tricks the mind into saying oh yeah yeah i've been here before i know what i'm doing even if you don't Mm -hmm. Hmm. steve in our in our first do hard things episode um I was lucky enough to be given chapter five, which is where give up itis comes up. And one of uh, many of the listeners to this podcast are long distance ultra runners. And one of the uh, chronic problems in running, say, 100 milers or longer is dropping out. And we had a we talked a lot about, you know, because all of us have seen runners at aid stations, you know, at mile 78 in the middle of the night with a really bad case of give up itis. And one of the things that's actually really uh, been a, a valuable learning experience just from this book is like, OK, that's a good time to give someone a choice. Do you want a quesadilla or a grilled cheese sandwich? Do you want to change your shoes now? Mm. Do you want to put a fresh pair of socks on? How about we just walk to the next aid station? 
You can stay here and sit here and get cold, or we can just walk to the next aid station and then decide what we're going to do, right? And that, and and so, and I, I, I have a feeling based on this, what you talked about in chapter five, that might happen. I want to say one more thing about chapter five, because the main reason I chose it is I'm in education. And I love the section where you've spent time talking to teachers and increasingly with No Child Left Behind and some of the high stakes testing that many uh, my, of my public school colleagues are, are forced into completely limits a teacher's autonomy and choice. In fact, I would argue that it's a little bit of what's responsible for the current teacher shortage we're experiencing because teachers are getting running away from that. Why would I do this if I just have to, you know, on October 7th, pull out this folder and teach this thing? So you hit on the, that control cord with, with Korean POWs or ultra runners at mile 78 who just need something to get them out of the chair or the teacher who's really frustrated at the, the, the home office, giving them unrealistic expectations and giving them no autonomy is really a, a completely new definition of toughness and something that I think resonates with all of us. You know, I'm glad you brought up that. And I'm, I'm, I think you're spot on with the with well, I'll start with the ultra running is what happens is in those moments of high stress and fatigue, our world tends to narrow. And like, we can't see anything except for like, this sucks. Like, get me <laughs> out of here. Like, stop. <laughs> In those small choices, you're talking quesadilla, grilled cheese. Like what that does is beyond giving us control, it broadens our world a little bit and says, oh, yeah, like I still have a say in this, even on this simple thing. And I think that's so powerful. And then I'll give you guys some behind the scenes yeah. stuff here. So my wa- my wife is a public school teacher. And while writing this chapter, I was finishing up this chapter and it was in the middle of the pandemic you know, year of schooling, which was insane. And I'm I'm telling my wife about this and she's like, Oh my God, you just need to talk to teachers. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, why? Okay, I don't know anything, you know? So I, I was fortunate. It's like she connected me with a wide variety of teachers and the over and over again I heard exactly the same thing you just talked about is it is the sense of autonomy that is, you know, crushing often public school teachers because they have feel like they have no control, no say, no input, what have you. And it turns out that like it wasn't just me interviewing. If you look at recent data that came out after the book was published, like one of the main contributors to the teacher shortage crisis and burnout crisis we are, we're experiencing is a feeling like I have no say, no, no control, no autonomy. So I think it's, it's again, you know, I've tried to, even though I'm just a runner and coach and what have you, I've tried to expand out to have these conversations with leaders in education because I think it's so important because teaching is just going to lose good talent if you don't give them back, you know, some freedom and control and autonomy in their life. You know, Don, I, I, I want to um, put you on the spot. Uh, you mentioned this in, in one of the prior three episodes um, Don is is a former Marine, and he was in. He was he went through boot camp when when it was the old scenario of toughness. And tell us tell us about your choice. What what how did, how did you how did that work with you? I think that reinforces and may give uh, Steve some uh, um, accolades uh, that he was down, going down the right path here. 
You know, you know, I always love it, Scott, how you, you expect me to, on the spot, recall things that I've said or what you're talking about. I'm going to give you my best shot here. So I, I think what you're referring to is I knew it was going to be hard going in, but I promised myself that I would always have the freedom to do with whatever I wanted to with the tongue in my mouth. My mouth would be closed, but I had the freedom to move it to the left side or the right side. That's all the freedom. That's all the choice I need. I would be content with that type of freedom. And anything, anything that was tougher than that, I was ready for because I, was, I had what I, expe- what I wanted as freedom and what I expected. So if that's what you're talking about, Scott, that's what I had. That is. I, I love that story, Don. I wish I would have known that before I, I wrote the book. I might have included it there. But that, that's such a wonderful example of like, you know, when I talk about freedom, often people think it's like, oh, I'm free to do everything and make every choice. It's like, no, no. In some situations, it's the simplest and smallest thing, right? And if you can reach that simple, smallest thing, then you're going to be in a good spot and you're going to free yourself up to, you know, perform up to your capabilities. I, I'm going to add, I, I remember AJW's chapter five review and, and thinking about choice and selfishly how, it, how I think about choice is if I quit now, tomorrow, I don't have a choice. And I didn't want to lose that because looking back on it, was it really that bad? Was I hurting as much as I think I was? And so by not pulling the tag and not quitting then, I would lose my choice if, if I quit. So I hung in there. I hang in there because of choice. So I used choice, but a little, you know, I turned it a little bit and used it to my advantage how I would use it. You know, again, I love that example. And it reminds me of one that I didn't include in the book, I don't think. But um, I was talking to a, a very good runner who was Olympic trials, you know, finalist in distance events. And he put it like this. He said, you know, what I do sometimes in a longer race uh, for him, like a 10K, is in that moment where I start feeling like fatigue, doubt, and I, I want to quit, I imagine myself at the finish line looking back at this moment, mm-hmm. which is kind of what you're saying. Like, I think mm-hmm. of how I'll feel tomorrow looking back. And what that does is not only give you that that shifting how you see choice, but I think it also like zooms you out and gives you perspective in that moment of like where it feels like you're kind of trapped, fatigued, and just kind of quit. So I often, you know, think of that as a strategy as well as anything you can get out of, you know, this moment of, we'll say it dread or fatigue and like remind yourself that like, hey, you're going to see this in a, in a different light, you know, after the race, a day from now, a year from now, or what have you. Like that's that's kind of what it is. That that perspective changer is really valuable. Steve, one of the other principles that I I learned from this book, uh, I, I I'm I'm still trying to figure out how to use it and and become better at it, is the whole idea of the different um, frames of self talk. Um, and you you listed some some great examples there. Can you? Can you elaborate on that a little bit and 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 teach me again how should I be talking to myself when I'm in a stressful or or uncomfortable situation? <laughs> oh man, so this was one of my favorite parts to look at too because it's all so messy. So here's <laughs> here's here's what I'll say is what we know is that sometimes why our self-talk doesn't work is because we're always talking to ourselves. 
So our brain learns to tune out the voice, kind of the positive voice in our head that is is trying to keep us going. So what we have to do is create what psychologists call psychological distance, which essentially is this, is changing how you talk to yourself so that your brain kind of comes back online and says, oh, yeah, I should pay attention to that. So some of the research-backed ways that actually work is just changing the verbiage that you use. So instead of talking to yourself in first person, like, I've got this, whatever have you, to second or third person, like Steve, Scott, Don, you've got this, right? What that does is you're, you're not used to talking to yourself like that. So it creates space between that stress and your self-talk. And your brain kind of comes online and says, hey, why is Steve saying Steve's got this? Like, this is a little weird, (laughs) right? So it creates that little space where it's like, oh, maybe I should pay attention to this. And the research takes this a little further where, again, there's some newer research that shows that if you take that inner voice and and take it outside and talk to yourself literally, you know, what happens is similarly, your your brain kind of goes like, okay, why am I hearing this not only in my head, but through my ears as well? So it creates that just just moment of space where it goes, okay, maybe I should listen to this. And what I tell people is if you don't want to sound crazy and talking to yourself, then tell a teammate or competitor or the person you pass in the race, like, Tell them what you want yourself to hear. (laughs) And often that can also dislodge you because all you're doing in your self-talk is if everything's going great, like keep doing the self-talk you're doing. But if you're starting to spiral out of control, those are the moments where you've got to like almost interrupt it and create some distance so you can change that narrative. So whatever you can do to create that distance and change that narrative is going to be a good thing. Knowledge is power. That's one of the great things about trail running is you learn from people around you. You'll learn knowledge. And the more knowledge you have, the better and smarter you can be. Inside Tracker can be a source of knowledge. You don't have to listen to Scott and I. You can listen to Brian Vaughn. He's the founder and CEO of Goo Energy Labs. And here's what he says. I can track key blood biomarkers and understand correlations between diet exercise, and overall health, precisely what's needed to have a successful season. Inside Tracker breaks down the science between the blood biomarkers and your performance. If you're ever wondering about what's going on on the inside, take a look at Inside Tracker. They'll let you know. We have loved it, and we think that they're a great partner for us on the trail. If you want a deal, and what's that deal? 20% off. You can go to our website, click on the deals, Go scroll on down to Inside Tracker and click on the link there, and you'll get 20% off your entire order. Well, I want to I want to bring this up to 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 the uh, three of you. You don't have to be just the solo person to respond, Steve. Is when you were talking about self-talk, it made me wonder which has the loudest voice: the negative self-talk or the positive self-talk? Who is the the most vocal character in your own head. AJW, I see you shaking your head. You already know the answer. What do you think? Well, I remember, I forget which one it was. Might have been a second episode. Scott had a chapter with the angel, kind of the old angel and the devil. They could be as loud as we let them be. 
Right. I mean, I, there's the, the chapter that Chrissy did in, in section three was about, you know, negative feelings are louder, you know. And so I think I think we need to be able to control the volume. I think experience would suggest the, the louder we let it get, the louder it gets. And and there's only so much volume. So if, if the negative is so loud, there's no room for the positive to possibly out uh, out loud it and hopefully vice versa. Uh, but that's also where you get into the the chapter we talked about in our third um, episode. Scott, do you remember that uh, angel and devil? I, I I do, and and well, let me get, let me go back to the way I think. If I have some a negative talk, I want to try to push that away, get rid of it, ignore it, uh, you know, disassociate with it. And I think you you bring up the point that it's okay, and probably there may be a, be a benefit to listen to that voice. Give it space, listen to the other voice, the positive voice, give it space, and then make a decision. Do do I remember that right? Yeah. So I love what both of you guys said, because I think you're both coalescing around the same point, which is the reason we don't try and push or react to that negative voice is because if we give it, we push it away, we try and react, we try and whatever to it. All we're doing, as AJW said, is like, we're validating it. We're telling our brain that like, this is important, right? So the example I like to give is like, I don't know, if you ever give your spouse or significant other, if you tell them to relax, right? Hey, just relax or whatever, calm down. Like what happens? It backfires, right? So it backfires all the time. So you don't do that. Well, the same thing kind of occurs internally if if we kind of we tell our brain to like, hey, when it's spiraling over out of control, we're like trying to control it by saying, hey, relax. Like it just backfires. <laughs> it gets louder. So in my head, like what we're doing, Scott, is exactly what you said is like what we want to do is not validate that negative voice, not give it fuel. We wanted to say, hey, you know what? Like, I'm going to sit with this. I'm going to maybe a way to look at it is like if you see your crazy aunt or uncle ranting on Facebook or what have you, you just say, hey, I see you there, but I'm just going to scroll on by and, and let this one go and not comment to like add fuel to the fire. Like that's how we want to approach our inner voice because the the voice we kind of like validate and add fuel to is the one that's going to grow. Steve, I want to I want to take that topic and jump all the way back to the beginning of the podcast. You needed to learn to relax. How did you do it? You could obviously you're saying you can't just tell yourself to relax. So what strategies did you do to to relax? Yeah, so that's a that's a great question. Um, and one I actually hadn't thought about too much in that specific situation. But he, here's, here's, here, I'll tell you what I did. One was I put myself in really uncomfortable situations and then tried to relax my muscles. So everything from my neck to my throat to whatever. So I remember, for example, like getting in a super cold, freezing ice bath and just sitting up to my neck and being like, okay. I'm just going to try and sit here and not tense up and not shiver. And I wasn't resisting. I was just like, just, you know, stay calm, et cetera, et cetera. So one one thing that I, and I did that in a variety of things. Same thing I did that, for example, in, in holding my breath. I remember being in my parents' pool and just like going underwater and being like, oh gosh, I'm, I need to breathe, right? 
and I want to go up for air and I'd be like, just relax everything. Like everything's going to be okay. So what you're doing in those moments is essentially that alarm is going up and you're saying, hey, everything's all right. I'm going to just kind of sit with this and like let it go through. And the other thing that I really had to like learn how to do is specifically in running is what we just talked about there, which is like change how I approached like that inner world, my inner dialogue, the emotions I was feeling when I was running in knowing that I knew when the hard part was going to come because it always comes at around the same point in the race. So I was like preparing for it and saying, hey, this is what's going to happen. This is how you've trained to respond to this. Like these are the doubts that are going to come into your head. Like what kind of tools are you going to use? And the, the last thing I'd say that it was really important to me is like I would just have an idea of uh, like a number of different tools for what to do in those situations. So for example, sometimes I'd like try to just kind of accept things in terms of my head. Sometimes I'd try and like relax my muscles. Sometimes I'd try to think about, you know, as we talked about earlier, the future and how am I going to look back on this? Sometimes I downplay things and be like, hey, you know, if you collapse, the good thing is this, is your airway is going to open and you're going to be fine anyways, Right. And sometimes a strategy would work and sometimes it wouldn't. And you just would kind of cycle, cycle, cycle until you found something that like worked in that moment. Well, we've talked about that in the, this in the past that, you know, so many people say, ah, running, that's, that's so boring. I don't think I could do it for that long. But, but this is just, running is just a vehicle to get what, what you're talking about right now, learning who you are, finding out what thing, when the come match, when adversity comes at you, what do you do with it? It's very, it's, it's all in our DNA. It's what we've lived through. It's what we've done as, you know, as far back as you can see, we've learned to adapt and cope with these hard things and adversity. And you can get it with cycling or, or, you know, canoeing or mountain climbing or whatever you want, but running is, is a great way to discuss it. And it's about learning yourself and learning who you are. And at the end of the journey, your running career or a long run, you'll learn something about you. You spent some time with a person that is probably most important, the person you're closest to, the person that's going to be with you. The next hard thing is going to be you. And that's what is so important about going out and testing yourself to do these hard things before before you come up against your next one, because there's a guarantee there will be a next one. You know, I love that because essentially you're getting that the essence of of the sport, which is like, to me, it's, it's an exploration, right? All we're doing, the reason, you know, that running allows you to do that things is because we literally have to face these challenges. You can't fake your way through it. You can't put on the facade and think that's going to work. You have to come face to face with, you know, your own struggles and your own limits and sometimes fail mm. when doing that. And I think in a weird way, in a society where we often are able to protect ourselves or like just put put out a sliver of reality, running forces us to confront, like, as you said brilliantly, like who we are at the deepest level. And I think that's why one of the reasons why I love this sport. And in fact, you know, I was having a conversation with a good friend of mine who used to be a high school teammate who you know, put it to me like this. He said, you know, 
I've thought a lot about like why our friendships in running have like lasted decades. And he said, I think it comes down to there are very few opportunities in life where you get to see people at their rawest moments where maybe they're they're sitting mm. at that aid station like crying or like barely able to function and you just get to see another person being a human and because of that you connect mm-hmm. because there is no facade yes. it's just it's we're all human and i think that is that's also what i i think i love about running perfect yeah i love that Hey Steve, as you as you're describing this, uh, the strategies you're having, um, it reminded me of a story, and I'm going to get all the facts wrong, but I'm going to get the basic principle of the story <laughs> right. I think it was Brett Favre. He was in a Super Bowl, coming down to the wire. They need to score within you know the last minute, or else they're going to lose. And that, that, high, that Scott, that happened. That that happened a few times. So you're safe so far. Keep going. Well, high, high stress, high, high stress. Everybody's anxious and they're sitting in the huddle and Brett Favre takes a knee and he says, hey guys, look over there. It's John Candy. (laughs) (laughs) And what that did, what that did was got everybody to calm down and relax. Here they are at the Super Bowl, the stress, the most stressful time probably in their entire career. And he's taking them and shifting their 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 that stress level and helping them calm down by making an absurd um, observation. And I'm sure that I got absolutely, I, I, it may not have been Brett Favre, it may have been <laughs> Troy Aikman. I, I have no idea. And maybe it wasn't John Candy, it was Steve Martin. I have no idea. But I think I got the gist of the story. It, you know, I love that, that story, though. I'm going to have to go look it up after this because, like, what, what, what's brilliant about it is it is a leader seeing the moment and then saying, okay, I can tell everyone's stressed or whatever and we're through the roof, you know, on physiological arousal. How do I shift the perspective? Well, like, here's a tool. Like, that's, that's, that's brilliant. And that's what you see good coaches, good leaders, whatever have you, is they see in those moments, how do I help other people get in a state to perform? And and that's what he's doing. You, you know what, Steve? I agree with you. That is a brilliant story. And I've run a lot of miles with Scott, and I've listened to the same stories <laughs> over and over and over again, but he's never shared that one with me. And Scott, I, you know, I take issue with that. You have some good ones stored up. Hey, Ryan Ryan is our producer and, and editor. Can you do some fact checking for us? Can you put on another hat and get the, <laughs> get the real story? <laughs> I, it, you know, even if it's made up, I'm, I'm going to tell that story. So I, I, I think it's just great regardless. So I I think we just go with it. I think I'm 70% sure that I didn't make the whole story up. I just uh, changed the names to protect the innocent. <laughs> and go. maybe the sport. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know it was football. <laughs> but but it, it reminds me, okay, I'm going to give some validation to this, is that I don't know that story, but it reminds me, actually, there was a, there was a game last week where the Seattle Seahawks High stress situation. They're trying to, I think it was the game winning drive, something like that, something similar. I'm going to mess up this up like you, but I remember watching the video. The quarterback, you know, just is, is kind of losing his mind because like they just had a penalty that set them back. You can see he's getting upset at the ref and Pete Carroll, the coach walks over to the quarterback and is yelling. Quarterback's name is Geno Smith. He's like, Geno, 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 trying to get his attention. Geno, the quarterback, turns, looks at Pete. And Pete just, like, gives him this hand motion to, like, essentially bring his hands down to his chest. And he, and he's, you 
can't quite tell what he's saying, but it's something like presence, you know, in the moment. And that's what great leaders do is they shift you from maybe I'm saying your attention is over here and you're you're worried about this thing and stress is going up. And we cue yourself up to remember what is important in this moment. How do I get to a place to perform? And for a quarterback, it's probably, you know, bring it down, get to a place of equanimity where I can think clearly and keep my mind steady so I can execute the skills I need to execute. I was going to bring up a separate topic, but you just brought up something that I think is very interesting. I'd love to, to talk about it. It's about trying to be in the moment, how important it is to be present at that at that very moment that you're in. Can you talk about that, or you have any thoughts about it? Yeah, I think we suck at it. Mm. <laughs> so, um, it, I mean, here's here's the reason. It's because we, we have so many things that distract us, that pull us away, you know, our phones being one of them, but this pull us away to what we're actually doing. And if you look at, Great. If you look at, they've actually studied this on great marathoners. What they are able to do is they are experts at controlling their attention and assigning it to the right places at the right time. And what I mean by that is it's not being in the moment at every spot in the marathon because that's a really freaking long way, but it's knowing when you need to be present and in that moment and focused and like locked in. And that is a skill. So when I look at, you know, people talk about being in the moment, I look at it as, do you have the skill to direct your attention when the pressure is on, when the stress is on, when the fatigue is high, so that you can be in the moment executing the things you want to execute and do the things that you want to do? And if you don't, well, the good news is this, is it's a trainable skill. It's a, it's simply directing our attention. And if you find your attention wandering or getting grabbed to the future or worrying about what's going to come next or the implication of XYZ, well, anytime you experience it, guess what? That's an opportunity to train your brain to say, hey, hey, wait a minute, I'm drifting over here. How do I pull myself back to the thing I'm doing right in front of me? Yeah, well, to that point, Steve, how, how do we do that? Is, is, there, is there a recipe, uh, tricks of the trade to bring ourselves back into the moment when we see ourselves naturally drifting off. Yeah, so I don't think there's any trick of the trade, but what I would say is that like you have to have some sort of like cue or thing that kind of centers you and focuses you as you on the task at hand. So this is why often people, you know, if you if you watch enough races or listen to enough coaches like in running especially, people will kind of try to direct the attention for the athlete. They'll say, "Hey, like, you know, swing your arms this way or relax your body or whatever. What they're trying to do is is bring you from feeling like distracted and like worrying and, and like spiraling to, hey, what am I actually doing? So when I look at athletes, I think you can direct your attention to, you know, the stuff you're doing, whether that's the mechanics of it, the next step. You can direct your attention to things that are occurring, like your breathing, paying attention to that going inwards. And also, if you find yourself drifting, you know, thinking about the future, what I would say is shrink the kind of thing that you're taught, you're thinking about. So for example, if you're in the man middle of an ultra and you're on mile 25 and you're worried about, you're thinking about mile 40, 
Well, instead of thinking about mile 40, like bring it all the way back to, okay, how do I make it to the next mile? Or how do I make it to the next turn or the next person ahead of me? And what that tends to do is, again, shrink it so that you're forced to kind of stay like in these bounds, which are more in the moment versus like thinking about what's to come. I, I love the title of your book, Do Hard Things, because you, you can take it so many different places. And, and, and I think that, that you, the, the, the title that you chose fits your content perfectly. But I also think about some of the most memorable things that I've done in life. Some of the, most, the items I'm most proud of were hard things. There were things that I didn't think I could accomplish that I did. So doing hard things, I think, is an, an important part of life's journey. And I think that the the name of the book gives it gives it gives a recipe of how to get through some of them. But looking back, I think I hang my hat on the hard things that I've accomplished as other things that I like like to recall and talk about and and remember. You know, you're you're spot on. I think the hard things stick in our memory for a reason because like they give us confidence. They give us that feeling of togetherness and belonging. Like we talked about mm-hmm. when you're running with your teammates or what have you go through and going through a race with your teammates. And, you know, I'll, I'll say this is one of the worst part of books is coming up with titles. <laughs> so I absolutely despise it. It's so important too. <laughs> like publishers will be like the title can make or break the book. And you're sitting here like, well, great. I don't know what to call it. Um, so I have to give credit again to my wife, who is a teacher, who during that kind of pandemic thing, I'm I'm sitting here with a list of like a hundred different random combination of words for my title around toughness and grit and resilience and all these combinations and synonyms. And I'm looking at the sources and I hear her in the background talking to um, one of her students during the online period, because this is the brief period when kids were online. And she's like, you know, hey, come on, Jemmy. Like, I know this is tough, but like, you can do hard things. And like, that just stuck mm-hmm. with me. I'm like, wow. you know what? This is good. Like, this makes sense. And, you know, that's where it came from. So I'm, I'm right there with you. You probably should have credited your wife as a co-author in this book, Steve. <laughs> I, I, you know, this is this is how it is in most things in life, you know? She deserves the credit, but the man is stealing it. So, no, she she's uh she did a great job in supporting this work. So, appreciate it. She found that four-leaf clover there as you were on your stroll. You leave us with uh, at the final chapter with this idea uh, that real toughness is about acceptance. Um, there's a piece of it that's making yourself vulnerable, making yourself open to discomfort. It's it's odd to think that you're. It's a message of hope coming from acceptance and discomfort. But you're able to, as you bring us through this journey, uh, get us there. And ultimately, the discomfort that comes with life whether it's in the military or in sports or in a relationship, makes us tougher as long as we accept it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting and funny that, like, acceptance is such a big deal. And this comes back to what Don talks about is, like, so many of the memories we have are through those challenges, right? 
And one of the ways that like we get to that other side of that challenge to turn it into growth is the acceptance and then and to a degree like embracing it. And I'll leave you with again, the study came out after the book, so I didn't include it, but I thought it was brilliant because what it did is there was this group of psychologists that looked at one of the most challenging things that we could do in modern society, which is to get people from opposing sides of the political aisle to talk to each other. And they investigated, well, how in the world do we get these people to talk to us on the far extremes of both sides? And they gave them, like, uh, essentially primed them, those two mindsets. With one group, they said, hey, you know, go talk to this person. Maybe try and learn from them. I don't know. Something, like, generic like this. And then the other set, they said, hey, this is going to be a really uncomfortable conversation. Like, accept that. Embrace the discomfort. We want you to go towards the discomfort of the conversation. That's all they said. We don't care, you know, if you agree. We don't care if you disagree. Just go towards that discomfort. And what they found in the study afterwards is the people who were primed to embrace the discomfort to accept it, guess what? They rated their conversations as better. Mm. They rated being able to see that other person as a human being instead of a label and category. They didn't automatically agree with everything the other person said or what have you, but they were able to kind of find this common sense of humanity and like appreciate each other and where they were coming from. So I think that message applies to everything in life, where if we can kind of go towards that discomfort and accept that some things are going to be challenging— that opens up the opportunity to to grow from it. And I think that's kind of what life is all about. Steve, you've written such an important book. It goes far beyond just running or any sports. I really think it it is important for for everyone, for humanity, I, for relationships, for just life in general. And I really think people should go out and embrace it. It's one of the books that will have a long life on the shelf. It really will be fantastic. And I'm really impressed. I'm so happy that we got a chance to talk to you firsthand. When the book first came out, we were looking at it. Scott had said, hey, do you think we should do... I started reading it. Do you think we should do a podcast on it? And then I said, absolutely. Then he ended up with it, and it became more than that. We said, we've got to go chapter to chapter, because every chapter we read is so significant that you wouldn't want to leave anything out. So you've written such a good book, and we appreciate you coming on with us and, and sharing sharing this time. And I'm 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 going to coin a new phrase today here on Trail Runner Nation. A book is worth a thousand episodes of Trail Runner Nation. Um, even though we've done four episodes on this book, there's so much that we didn't touch on. There in the in the book, there are exercises that Steve you know, enumerates in there that you can do something to become tougher. And that's the overall hopeful message of this is if you don't think you're tough, read the book and try some of these exercises, some of these strategies, and you can become tough. Can't we, Steve? Reinforce my statement there. (laughs) Can we become tough? (laughs) You know, we can. And that's kind of the message of hope is often what happens is we think, oh, you're kind of either born being tough or you're not. And the research, the top performers, all of that throws that out the window and says we can all improve in these abilities. And I just want to thank you guys. I mean, it, you know, what you said there, Don and and Scott and all you guys is – 
like that really touches my heart because as authors, we're often in the blind where we're just like, I think this is going to work. I think people <laughs> will read this and resonate this, but mm-hmm. you know, it's only me, my wife and a couple close friends who have actually read this book. So I don't know until it comes out in the world. So it, it just, it just makes me feel, you know, really good and, 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 you know, hopeful and uh, encourages me to do the crazy thing, which is, at some point, write another one of these things, which uh, takes forever. So I appreciate it, and I'm I'm so thankful for you guys sharing it and discussing it and uncovering it in your pod because, um, you know, that's what allows me to do the things that I, I can do. If it wasn't for people like you guys sharing it, like, I wouldn't be able to write any books. So I, I just appreciate that, um, you know, thoroughly. Well, I'm, I'm going to make a pre-order on your next uh, book coming out. I know it's going to be fantastic. And I would say to all listeners, go out and buy this. It's not a hard thing to do. Just get it. You'll you'll love it. Oh, well done. Well done, Don. Um, <laughs> if you enjoyed this as much as Don and I did, go to stevemagnus.com. There's a lot more resources there. You can follow him on Instagram and Twitter, at Steve Magnus, which I have done, and Steve tweets and and puts things on Instagram quite often that are are good thought provoking um, um, ideas. He's a co-founder of the Growth Equation. We'll have that link. It's an online platform dedicated to understanding and the and practice of performance and well-being. This isn't his first book. He also co-authored Peak Performance and co-authored The Passion Paradox and also wrote the book The Science of Running. And he also has a podcast. What's the name of that podcast, Steve? So I've got two, actually, the Growth Equation podcast and On Coaching. Excellent. Mm-hmm. So we'll make sure that we include those in the show notes as well. Steve, anytime you want to come back, the invitation is open. You've done such a great job with the book, and we really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much, guys. I love this conversation. You guys you guys are the best. So this was this was a very enjoyable podcast, so keep up the good work. Improve your toughness and go out and run... Mas. And now we've reached the end of the podcast, really the finish line, Scott, where we give high fives as we're coming through the big arch. And we're going to thank our executive producer and editor, Ryan War. And our social media guru, Yana Gibalova. And our website graphic engineer, Katie Burke. We also want to thank the Patreon supporters. If you want to become one, you can go to our website, hit the Support Us tab, and you can sign up on our Patreon channel. We also want to thank our business Patreon member, Doug Crumley. Doug Crumley is a coach for your finances. He is a private wealth advisor with Crumley & Associates, which is a private wealth advisory practice of AmeriPrize Financial Services, LLC. When you have the right financial advisor, life can be brilliant. Visit him at www.dougcrumleyjr.com. Scott, we mentioned the deals page quite often. That's on our website, trailrunnernation.com. And we've made a lot of changes there, and we're really proud of it. There's a lot of information there. Of course, there's the deals page where you can get all sorts of discounts on gear that we love and trust. We also have all of our other podcasts. We also have the training principles link. So we just started the training principles episodes at the beginning of this year. 
all those are kind of organized in one area. So if you're just getting into trail running and want to know the basics of where to start, go to the training principles tab. You can also sign up for our newsletter. We don't fill your mailbox full of junk every week or twice a week. Only when there's important things to happen, you'll also be notified when a new podcast hits the air. So go to trailrunnernation.com.